I'm Laura Umansky with Laura U Interior Design, and you are listening to Combo by Design. I'm Josh Cooperman, and this is Convo by Design. This is a conversation from the West Edge Design Fair called Epic Spaces and Favorite Places. So here's the idea. Online access has made the world a smaller place. It's brought us closer together and created the opportunity to see amazing things in wonderful and faraway places. For some, that's just not good enough. Travel, treasure hunting, and using that as inspiration to create magnificent spaces is their true desire. This is a conversation about amazing places in exotic locations and bringing it at home. Moderated by USmodernist.org's George Smart and featuring Assemblage Plus's David Thompson, Massimo Buster Manali from Buster and Punch, uh, interior designer Allison Pickert, and John McLean, and Fettel's Tom Parker. This is a great chat about design, inspiration, travel, and putting it all together in pursuit of epic spaces. Speaking of inspiration, Convo by Design is presented by Walker Zanger, a family-owned business and an extraordinary company. The Walker Zanger brand was built on the promise to inspire designers and architects to do their best work. That promise is fulfilled every day through a commitment to provide the best ceramic, glass, stone, porcelain, and concrete surfaces and finishes. This is a family business with over 65 years of global product discovery, sourcing and manufacturing the finest products available. Walker Zanger believes strongly in serving the trade with a trade program to make the specifying process simple with the support you need. They also have been staunch supporters of the trade since 1952. Check out their newest collaboration with designer Pieta Donovan, a, a collection of cement and ceramic tiles inspired by the patterns and colorways of the 1970s and created with a, with a comfortable modernity. Walker Zanger is on the cutting edge of design, featuring products for every style and architectural feel you can create. Check out any of their 14 showrooms across the country or shop online at walkerzanger.com. Thank you, Walker Zanger. All right, let's get to it. We got the green light. How you all doing? Good? Are you enjoying the expo? Well, welcome. Welcome to West Edge. This is Epic Spaces and Favorite Places, and I'm George Smart. I am the host of U.S. Modernist Radio Podcast and the founder of usmodernist.org, where we talk and laugh with fascinating people around the world who own, create, love, and hate modernist architecture the most controversial houses and buildings in the world. There we go. Are any of my 47 listeners here? Anybody listen to the show? Okay, we've got two, okay. I think all 47 of you are here. So um, I know many of you are here at the Expo for the first time, and I'm here for the first time as well, which I'm really thrilled about. It's my honor and privilege to moderate this panel of strong, good-looking, all-above-average designers talking about how their favorite places and spaces influence their work. As some of you know who have ever visited the usmodernist.org website, what we lack in design, we make up for in volume. With nearly a terabyte of content about mid-century modern 
and 2.7 million pages of design magazines, our webmaster is Fred Flintstone. <laughs> Apparently, he stopped learning coding skills around 1998, which is the Stone Age for the internet. And my last major design decision was when my wife called to say that the timeline for my new bathroom was about 15 minutes from then. And I was in an airport getting ready to get on a plane. So I emailed her through my phone a few photos of sinks and lighting and tile. And now I'm thrilled to report that every day I wake up and I walk into the smaller version of the American Airlines Admiral's Club men's bathroom. <laughs> this is a true story. So uh, the internet, which we all know was invented by Al Gore, has given us more shared global experiences than ever before. But for many, that's not going to be enough. True desire for travel is tasting, treasure hunting, discovering, and connecting with local people and cultures, which all add fuel to the fires of design inspiration. Today we talk about how these top designers use their experiences to create lasting impressions for clients and fans. So let's meet the panel. In 2013, Tom Parker joined forces with longtime friend, raise your hand, Tom, with Andy Goodwin to form Federal Design, an interior A&D firm specializing in the hospitality industry. Federal develops projects for a range of major clients, including Summerston Capital, Metropolitan Restaurants, Gourmet Burger Kitchen, and Diva Gastronomy, and Mike Robinson. Although responsible for some of the world's hippest new bars and restaurants, he says, Andy and I are basically two little old ladies in 30-year-old men's bodies. Welcome, Tom. Hi. Next up, Allison Pickard's success started at just 18, this decorating a Paris apartment. Five years later, she started her design firm and completed projects in Las Vegas to New York to Geneva, Switzerland. Her successful philosophy of never offering, never offering unsolicited decorating advice has led to a stellar career. With offices in the Bay Area and in Chicago, she's now working on a chateau in France, a sprawling estate in Vermont, and a lake property in Wisconsin. Her first celebrity crush was John Schneider from Dukes of Hazard. Go Bo He's and Luke. hot. Yeah. And of interest to all model train fans, of which I am one, her great-grandfather founded the model railroad company, Walders. Welcome, Allison. <laughs> I didn't know you were a model railroader. That oh, makes yeah. sense. Yeah, that, that's it. Okay. John McClain, next on our list, is a residential interior designer whose passion is transforming houses into beautiful homes. His award-winning work in custom furniture design led to the creation John McClain Home, and his projects have appeared in publications such as Traditional Home and El Decor. The recipient of 14 ASID Design Awards, John is from Chatworth, Georgia, and he makes a mean tater tot casserole. <laughs> Welcome, John. Yes. You, you dug really deep on that I one. I dug okay. deep for Did that one. Did you call one. my mom or something? <laughs> I, hey, you know, I loved you in those Die Hard movies. Really, thank I you. I know. Thank I'm you. very, okay. yes, I'm great in those. All right. Next up. With a passion for making extraordinary and accessible products matched only by his interest in the three M's, motorcycles, metalwork, and music, London architect and industrial designer Massimo Buster Manali launched the Buster and Punch label in 2013. 
Following an architectural career at Foster and Partners, Richard Rogers, and his own agency, Manali and Man, he has subsequently carved out a worldwide reputation with precision cut lighting and beautifully crafted hardware. Welcome, Asimo. Thank you very much. And rounding us out, David Thompson is the founder and principal designer of Assemblage Plus, established in 1997 in Los Angeles with a four-year hiatus in New York. David has been a key member of the LA architecture community, including Syndesis and Lorcan O'Herlihy, playing a vital role in projects around the area. The son of architect Richard Thompson, David's expertise in fabrication informs Assemblage's architecture, furniture design, materials research, and the process of piecing objects together. Welcome, David. Thank you, great to be here. Let's give this panel a hand. All right, we're gonna start in this first question with David and sort of move this way. One of the most talked about houses in Los Angeles, if not the country or the world right now, is the Brady House from the Brady Bunch a show now 50 years old. The classic TV sitcom where the dad, the architect, Mike Brady, designed this house. It's a real house, at least the exterior is. I think over near Studio City is where it is. And HGTV bought it and has uh, changed the inside to look exactly like it was on the TV show. Our question for the panel to kind of kick us off, a little fun is, What's been the impact and design on popular culture of the Brady House? Well, it's interesting that you'll start with me with this question because it ages me a little bit because um, the, the Brady House, I, I grew up watching the Brady Bunch um, and uh, I grew up in an architecture family. My father's an architect. And so I think that the impact that certainly it had on me was um, the Brady family brought kind of uh, architecture to the mainstream and to popular culture. Um, and so it was it's sort of commonplace. So architecture was kind of in our homes all the time, or at least the notion of it. And, uh, you know, growing up in an architecture family, it kind of felt like I was living the Brady life, actually. And it makes me uh, think of uh, an episode, actually, when uh, Greg Brady, the oldest son, uh, wants to buy a car. He gets a job at his father's architecture firm and the first day he's there his task is to go deliver some drawings across town and he gets on his bike and uh, he stops at the local newsstand to look at the car that he wants to buy loses the drawings in the, in the process and uh, Mike Brady has to pull an all-nighter to redraw the drawings and he loses his job and loses uh, and, and uh, learns a very uh, honest lesson about responsibility and uh, Growing up in an architecture family, I had a similar situation as I remember being in my father's office as a young lad, um, taking some drawings out and doing some colored marker drawings over them and them bleeding through on a presentation that was due the next day and my father had to stay up to redraw the drawings. So uh, it was, uh, I really did live the Brady life. You were Greg Brady. Yes. <laughs> All right, cool. I'm going to have to really quickly shuffle this one to my right. I've, I've never seen the Brady Bunch. If this was uh, an Only Fools and Horses question, I'd be here forever, but I, I've literally never seen it. So, John, over to you. No, well, I only saw the reruns, but that's okay. Uh, so, actually, I, a lot of my friends actually worked with HGTV on this house, and we've had this very conversation, funny enough, about what 
not only what the interest in this house is, but the interest from the world and, and why they would buy it and why they would want to spend all this time and money in doing that. And as I was talking to not only them, but then some friends of mine as well, I think it was really the, the, the family values that that house created. I had friends who were saying, my, my parents were, you know, they were working all the time, so I felt like those were my parents on, Mike and Carol were my parents on the Brady Bunch. And so I think that it's brought back this feeling of nostalgia and not really specifically design elements, I don't think, but I think that this feeling of family and a lot of the designs that we work on now are, are very family-centric and whether we're designing for uh, a family to be and they have a, a child on the way or whether we're designing for a family that might have three children, all of these things are, I think, in relation to that because they want a space for the kids to play. They want a space, uh, a great backyard. They want uh, the kids to have their own input in their rooms. And as you saw on the show and on that renovation special, they spend a lot of time in getting those rooms back to the way those kids had lived in those spaces. So for me, the takeaway is the family and the fact that the family is kind of all-inclusive in design. Because I'll tell you, when we have a design presentation, I meet with the three-year-old and I'll meet with the mom and the dad and everyone and I want everyone to give me their uh, input on it to make sure that they get the room that they want. So that was my takeaway from it and I actually love that special. It was, it was done really well, I think. Allison? Well, I think that um, that house represented a certain like shift in how the family lives in their house. Um, the, I think that really was kind of like the birthplace of the open concept floor plan um, to have this like great room theme that like everybody gathered in, and it was like it just provided this like really beautiful architectural backdrop to all of the day to day things that were going on with that um, family, and I think that what's so special about the Brady house and the Brady show and everything that came along with it was like, they were representing a totally different way of American life, even though they were still blonde hair and blue eyed and handsome and all of that. It was like the first kind of like peek behind the curtain of like a blended family. And like the idea that, you know, Carol Brady had all of these, you know, professional and things going on as well that required a literal domestic helper to be managing all of the day-to-day routines of the family. So I kind of think that like that house was really representative of a shift in how we viewed the um, traditional family, which was very, you know, you know, two parents and two kids and it looked exactly like this. And it kind of gave a, like a license for everybody to like live their best life, you know, and we have a, we have a blended family and I, we depend a lot on the people that we entrust with our kids and our house. And they're a part of our family because that's what allows us to do the, to make our life work. And so I think that it, the Brady's coming back up is just kind of like a really wholesome reminder that where we are is like a really natural place in terms of like, it's not cookie cutter. It's not cut and dry. It's like, your situation is going to look different, like all across the board. And so I think the Brady house is like an awesome kind of like stage for that to be a reminder. So I'm with Massimo on this one. This never made it across the pond. So I've got nothing for you. Solidarity brother. Um, yeah, there you go. Um, the house itself is, uh, the future of it is uncertain. Uh, it's in a, a neighborhood uh, the neighbors have not been that pleased about all this attention on their street. So there are some plans to make it publicly accessible at some point, but it may be quite a while down the road. 
meanwhile, if you want to sneak over there and drive by and take a look at it from your car, you certainly can. It's very interesting. I was over there yesterday, and um, there were probably 25 people at least driving by in the 10 minutes that I was there by the house. So it's, it's quite the tourist attraction. Let's go into our, our prime topic here about spaces and places. And, and I want to ask you, of the scenes that you've observed or the physical places that you've been or even in your dreams, what are some of the spaces and places that continue to inspire you with your clients? Let's start on this end this time. I think a, a lot of the, the really inspirational places often for me at least come from my childhood and from the house that I, kind of what these guys are talking about, the house that you grow up in, I think, then represents in future life a lot of those values that come from those East spaces. Enders, maybe? No, East Enders, maybe? Exactly, East Enders, yeah. only, only fools and horses, as we, <laughs> as we okay. kind of touched on earlier. But it sets, and it's interesting, we, my, my wife and I talk about this a lot, but it sets your parameters a lot for what you expect from houses, particularly in the future, and from spaces in the future. It gives you this kind of bounding box of, of you know, what you do and don't want in life and what is and isn't home, especially in, in regards to residential design. I think it has a huge influence on how we as designers see places that we're designing for our clients. So I'd say mainly for me, it's places I grew up in. So what are some of those places? Tell us. I think the town I grew up in was very small. It's very, very typical. Something we've been discussing recently. It's very, very typical to have like a kind of two up, two down. What's the name of it? Tell Red, us. Reading. It's a very, okay. very, very well-known town in the Royal County of Berkshire in England. <laughs> it's rubbish. Never, <laughs> never ever go to Reading. Um, but it's, 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 a, it's a very kind of generic English town, but it sets when kind of we've been looking for home and it sets a lot of parameters in terms of what we would look for in a, in a space. Like the thought of a lot of my friends and, and people I know have grown up in apartment buildings and that kind of, the idea of growing up in an apartment building for me isn't, that doesn't feel like home. Whereas a lot of our clients who, for residential projects, they've grown up in, in apartment buildings and that's what they want from a home and that's what they expect. So it's, I think a lot of it in, in that case is about us shifting our mindsets as designers to be able to understand com someone coming from a different perspective. Great, thank you. Alison, so where are some of your places? Well, like the place that like inspires the most, I think. I always go back to my, ch I mean, I, I'll go back to my childhood home too, in the sense that like my mother always, she was very into like how everything worked and it had to be lovely, but she also was this really excellent entertainer and so the best memories I have are like Christmas Eve when like hot toddies were boiling on the stove and like casseroles came out well and yes and like the lighting and the can you know it's like it really like forces you to think about your environment is not just a, like a paint color or a sofa it's like what is the space you're creating like how does it feel and when you think about like feeling something it's not just what you can see it's what you smell it's what you hear it's like everything about that is what like kind of triggers those memories and so I think like the ones that like make me happiest and the most like nostalgically sad sometimes even are the ones in which like oh my god if I walk into your house and there is a hot toddy on the stove like I might just melt into like a bucket of tears you know you're just like oh my childhood but you it really it really is this kind of like full sensory experience of design and so I go back to the childhood home and that's what we try to create in our clients houses with like 
you know, I'm never going to tell somebody they got to burn a eucalyptus candle, but like, it's kind of having like a thoughtful approach to like, well, what do you like? And like, what are the things that remind you of home and like of a good memory? You know, I think that's really important in design. Where was home for you? Tell us. Um, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Okay. Midwest. Yeah. Solid. Miracle whip Solid. Solid. Yes. Solid. All right. Well, kind of on that same avenue, I remember growing up making tater tot casseroles. <laughs> you neglected to say my amazing red velvet cake, too. So oh, okay. I missed that one. Yeah, you missed that in your research. But um, So I grew up in a small town in Georgia, and, and you know I remember it was very traditional. And my mom had, she would order things from this company called Home Interiors. And, and I always loved when those things would arrive in the mail because uh, she let me open the box and put them on the walls. So I was this little kid hanging all these like tacky things on the walls everywhere. So for me, that sort of started this interest in, and it was very traditional design, so it started this interest in traditional design. And we didn't have necessarily a lot of money growing up, so we didn't take extravagant trips, and we didn't take a lot of wonderful vacations. We would go to Florida maybe you know once every other year or so. But as I got older and realized, like, oh my God, this world is a really, really big place, I started traveling on my own, and that's when it really opened my eyes up to all that's out there. And one of my favorite places in the world is Italy. I get so much inspiration from, from Italy. And every time I go, it's something different and something you know more interesting and something that I didn't notice the first time, whether it be the way the trees look or whether it be certain architecture or maybe it's the villa that we stay in. So I find that that's always a go-to inspirational place for me. And for that reason, I bring that back and implement that in a lot of my clients' projects. Are there particular cities in Italy that you enjoy? Um, anywhere in Tuscany. Just okay. plant me down with a bottle of wine and some cheese and some bread, and I'm, I'm totally good. Uh, Florence is, is hugely inspirational, I think, um, not only for the art scene, but just for the architecture itself. So those are, And they're really near each other, so it's great. I can just pop over from one to the other. So those are two of my favorite places to go. Cool. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I think for me... You're I think for me... Um, I'll, I'll do four in a row. I'll do the childhood thing again. Um, I'm from London, so um, I, I sort of love my city. It's a big metropolitan melting pot. Um, I also love comic books and manga books, and, and, and sort of Japan has been a big sort of source of inspiration for me. Um, my dad used to take us when we were small, um, and it kind of has that sort of heady mix of unfamiliarity. Um, and feeling like a, a true alien, which is kind of a rarity, I think, nowadays. Um, and actually, it was a big inspiration of why, why I became an architect. Um, it, you know, it's one of the only, or the few places, Tokyo is one of the few places that is an actual city that works in three dimensions, rather than just having a streetscape and some rooftop bars, which I think is super cool. And it's also, you know, this sort of space that or place that's sort of half futuristic half very historic and you know everywhere you look you get that sort of element of surprise you know whether it's pet shops with cages 10 stories high they have to take little elevators up and stuff like that so I've, I've always been kind of intrigued with um things that surprise and things that make you feel a bit uneasy which i kind of see in tokyo there's also this really cool place just it's about two hours outside of Tokyo called Sanjo, 
which is um, essentially where all the Japanese make their metalwork products. There's loads of forgeries and blacksmiths and stuff like that. And um, our first, we used to make products out there. So actually one of our first manufacturers is in this place called Sanjo, and we built motorbikes from the parts that were made there. So I've traveled quite a lot to Tokyo, but it's a constant sort of source of inspiration in everything I do, from architecture actually to products as well. Um, yeah. All right. That's one. David, what places inspire you? Um, is this on? Is this on? Yes. Um, you know, there's a lot of places that, that inspire me from all, all around the globe. I'll, I'll, I'll include myself in the panel in the sense that, you know, I certainly find a lot of inspiration from my childhood home. As I explained earlier, I, I grew up in an architecture family, so we, uh, we designed and built our house, which was a very inspiring environment to be a part of and be in kind of constantly around that design was, you know, just something that's just seeped in and you didn't really know it was kind of happening. It was happening kind of around you and, and uh, you kind of weren't aware of it. Um, so I, I share that with the panel. Um, but, you know, we find inspiration from a lot of different places in the, in the world and certainly from different styles, different building types, different time periods and things like that. Um, I think if we talk about architecture that's happening now i think we're you know we we look to um places like japan and and um, brazil and switzerland and stuff like that and, and certainly here in the u.s as well for inspiration you know for example um you know we we've i, I think the stuff coming out of switzerland um, from the offices of herzog and de Miron are just like some of the most inspiring work um going on uh, for example for instance the uh the uh, 111 Lincoln Road parking structure in Miami, uh, you know, is a profound and incredible solution for such a mundane building type, um, but it's incredibly inspiring and, and beautiful and, and such an incredible solution for that. Um, and so much work that's coming out of Japan, uh, Shiguro Ban, um, and the work they're doing, like the Aspen Art Museum, for instance, which is... Sure. Is, is an absolutely beautiful, beautifully crafted building that really kind of engages the user both on the inside and the outside to talk about the experience both from the inside of the museum out and the outside of the museum in. So, um, you know, we've, but again, we find inspirations from a lot of different places, um, from our own memories, but all around the world. And, and, and uh, uh, it's, it's a pretty amazing time to be, be doing what we're doing. All right. Now we're going to have some individual questions for our designers. I'm going to start with Allison. So, Allison, what is your favorite room of the house to design? Ooh. Um, hmm. Allison I, submitted this question, so she probably I, has an answer no, that's somewhere. Not true. Sorry. <laughs> um, okay, fine. <laughs> I'll say I'll say kitchen. Okay. Um, I think the kitchen is, you know, obviously, and it's very cliche, but it's the heart of the home. And I think that the kitchen is a technical challenge, and it brings a whole specific range of problems that need to be solved. But I like to look at the kitchen in terms of not only do you have to fit 
like a certain amount of things and function a certain way, but you have to do it in a gracious way that you could also like entertain a large group of people, but you could also sit with your husband and have a glass of wine or your have, do your homework with the kids. And like the kitchen represents like every type of living with the exception of like the master, like the bedrooms and the bathrooms, you know, like except for some couples, I guess. except yeah. for some couples. Yeah. So I think that like the kitchen is always like a really fun and welcome challenge because at the end of the day, like, I think that it's the heart, it's really the heart and pulse of the home, but it's also the biggest technical challenge in terms of what you actually have to accomplish within it. And then all the, you know, gilding of the lily, like what's the marble, what's the tile, what's the lighting, like that's always super fun because if you can look at it in a way that's different than just like a technical, you know, I have to function this way out of um, this space, but like, wait, why don't we use like living room lighting? Why don't we use like a table lamp in the corner of the counter? Why don't we hang sconces instead of being fully dependent on our recessed cans? You know, let's think about the space and how we like to feel, how we like to look, how and how to accomplish that in like a really pretty way. Like, I don't look good under super slope LED recessed cans. I just don't. And, like, I challenge you to find me the person that does. So it's like, I spend so much time in the kitchen. Like, I would like everybody to see my best side while I'm doing it. <laughs> so, Are you ready for kitchen. your close-up? What's that? Are you ready for your close-up? I'm never ready for my close-up. <laughs> you will very rarely find a photo of me. I am always behind the camera, for the most part. So, within the kitchen, uh, that's always the place where people who come over yep. want to gather. They always wind up there. Even small kitchens. Like, I don't necessarily... And I love a big kitchen. I really do. But I don't believe that the kitchen has to be big in order to be, like, an excellent place to entertain. And in fact, like, when you have a bunch of people over... They feel uncomfortable when they're spread out. It's like human nature to want to be like shoulder to shoulder and like skin to skin with people. So it, I Where always, are the shrimp? I'm looking for the shrimp. Totally, yeah, right. totally. And I find that like in the biggest homes we do, for like for example, I have one in mind where it's this massive kitchen that leads out to terraces and a great room and this, that, and the other thing. And everybody winds up in the butler's pantry. It's like... It's not vaulted, it's dark, it's small, and it's like that's where you're like your like intimate group of people who are really dishing the dish yeah. are like that's where you want to be. Like if you find yourself not in the butler pantry at those parties, like you are missing something. So <laughs> you are out. <laughs> you're out. You're out. So I think that um, like being really thoughtful and and intentional with how you lay out your kitchen with the technical versus the lovely, I think is the challenge that I really relish in each home. Cool. Thank you. David, you've been in Los Angeles a long time. What elements of this city inspire you in your practice? Um, well, I think Los Angeles is one of the greatest places to practice architecture. Um, it's, uh, it embodies uh, a pioneering spirit that's been here since the its early days and I really think that that pioneering spirit is so beautifully expressed in uh, in the architectural community and uh, I'm you know I'm always constantly in awe about the work that's happening here and I'm um, certainly very honored to be a part a contributing part of that that uh, community 
Um, but I think it's that pioneering spirit that like we're going to see really incredible innovation um, in all kinds of sectors of uh, art and architecture and sustainability and um, uh, city planning and transportation that I think is going to set this city uh, you know, way above all the other cities in the world. And, and it's, it's an amazing metropolis to be, to be practicing in uh, for those beautiful reasons. So. There's really so much going on here, and particularly on the boards. Absolutely. Coming down the pike in the next 10 years. Yeah, it's, it's going to be a city to, to, to watch for sure. John, you've just returned recently from a trip to Thailand. So I wanted to ask about where you visited and what sort of inspiration you brought back with you. Funny you ask, George. <laughs> I... John also submitted this question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I know. It sounded familiar. Um, no, it was... I've been to Thailand a few times. My, my husband is actually half Thai. His mom is from... That's him on the front row. Uh, his mom is from Thailand. And so we, we go back periodically and we'll visit uh, cities that, where she grew up. But this time we wanted to make it different and go to places that we had never gone to. So... It was amazing, amazing, amazing. I just can't stop thinking about it. We went to a place, uh, an island, uh, Koh Samui, and on Koh Samui we stayed at this amazing resort and just sort of let our, let our hair down and just relax, which is something that you don't really allow yourself to do a lot when you take a trip versus a vacation. So we made sure that we labeled it that way. Um, so Koh Samui was just this gorgeous tropical island, and actually I did a, a, my vignette is in the back corner over there, so that's, I based that vignette on this particular trip to Thailand as well, and we can chat more about that later, but from, from the island of Koh Samui, we flew to the mountains of uh, Chiang Mai, and in Chiang Mai, it is, again, very mountainous, and we did some amazing things with elephants, and we were just in nature the entire time, and nature really inspires me. What were you doing with the elephants? Were you riding them, or no, leading no, you them, don't or ride feeding them? them no, or? you can't ride them. That's a bad okay. thing. That's a bad thing. We fed them, and we it was a rehabilitation camp, so it was elephants who had been blinded by uh, performing in the circus, or they had stepped on a landmine and they were being rehabilitated. And so it was this beautiful experience where we sort of hiked with these amazing creatures. And we all had a bag of bananas on our shoulder and they would come up and we would feed them, you know, every, every so often. And then we had this amazing lunch. And as we're having our lunch, the elephants were roaming around all of the, the area. And it was just indescribable indescribable so that's how you charm an elephant you get a, a bag of bananas that's over how your i charm everybody with food <laughs> <laughs> and then and then from there you know i i really try to make sure that i don't just go to the main areas where everyone is going to go i try to find some places off the beaten path and that's really what makes the trip really interesting and we found a lot of those places that we just sort of stumbled upon along the way and those was really what are the places that stick with me uh when i take the trip okay yeah Okay, thank you. Yeah. That sounds like a really fun adventure. I can't stop talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> Tom, tell us, what are some of the key differences in design and construction between the UK and the US? I think that a lot of it, especially in design terms, is generated by the two cities. And we're noticing a big change here in LA now with a lot of kind of restaurateurs moving out from New York to come here, and that's kind of a cultural shift that's happening. But really in London, the design-wise... Every area is so like stringently and strongly different uh, over a very small kind of radius. So Soho is obviously very liberal and very outgoing, and you go across the street and you're in Marlebone, which is completely different, a lot more formal, a lot more residential, and it happens over a very small scale. Whereas here, I think you get the same thing, but it's just uh, it's kind of a lot more spread out. So 
design-wise in Westwood, in, in not so much in residential, in residential work, but certainly in hospitality, design-wise, what you can get away with here, you probably can get away with in the adjacent kind of areas, but then that changes greatly as you go towards downtown, as you go towards Silver Lake. That the, really is, will happen within a few steps in London. It can happen across a road, will be a completely different kind of set of parameters for design, particularly in kind of restaurant projects and, and hotel projects. I've noticed that too, when you're mm. doing a walking tour through London. Yeah. It's, it's like the, you know, in Hawaii they say, if you don't like the weather, just wait five minutes, it'll change. Yeah. You can walk through London and your neighborhood will change in five minutes. Yeah. And, it, and just all of the kind of social connotations that go with the different neighborhoods are, are very kind of, they change so, so quickly there. It's similar in New York actually, kind of, we, were, we were touching on New York earlier, but it's a very kind of similar situation there. But LA is, it, it feels a lot more kind of tolerant and a lot more liberal in terms of what you can get away with. And in terms of construction, I think construction here is so stringent, even in, re even in residential design, which is a lot looser in the UK. Kind of any, any construction here has to be kind of very heavily administrated. You have to be very, very careful with what you do. It's, it's a very different process. Whereas in London, it's kind of much more by the seat of your pants. You can kind of do a little sketch on a napkin and they'll build whatever you want. And it's, it's a bit, it's just a bit, here's like kind of much more strict, really. Okay, thank you. Massimo, you work with some blue-chip architecture firms with Norman Foster and Richard Rogers. Do you miss being an architect at this point? Um, I, I do miss architecture. Um, I, uh, I was an architect for quite a long time. I was sort of specifically doing interior architecture, and architects hate interiors, so I, I was one of the only ones doing that. Um, but I, I, I find the profession... A little slow. Sorry, David, you're going to have to close your ears on this. Um, especially when you work for the larger firms, it's very slow. You sort of get stuck doing toilets for two years. You have clients that kind of like filter, filter, filter your ideas. And I've got a, a very mild case of ADHD. So um, I need to do things quickly and get gratification quite quickly as well. That actually came out wrong. But... Um, <laughs> Um, but I, I, I do miss architecture. I think it's a really noble thing. Um, but for me, um, I sort of made the change to products via actually making motorbikes, which is quite strange. But I made the change to products just simply because I could design something, pour myself 100% into it, um, put it out there, and if people liked it, they bought it, rather than the very slow... Um, filtered, watered-down process that I was starting to find architecture was, was sort of making me feel. Yeah. Um, although now I'm doing products full-time, I really want to get back into architecture, I've got to say, and I kind of, um, I guess I miss, uh, you, you know, when, when, you, when you design products, you're kind of designing for the masses, so you're trying to cut through the millions of chairs or lights or light switches or whatever is out there. So it's a very sort of instant type of design. Whereas when you design architecture or interiors, you're doing it for a very small, intimate handful of people. So it's a very slow grower. Um, and normally with products, your best idea is your first one. It's your gut. But with architecture, your best idea is kind of the last one. So I kind of do miss that sort of slower gradual way of designing stuff rather than looking constantly at social and coming have to have to come up with the products and do it quickly so I, I, I guess I do I do miss architecture um, but we've started to in our product company we've started to look at 
we're starting to go back into interior space and things like that. So I'm sure I'll, I'll, I'll get back there at some point. Yep. So is there a building in your future that yes. you're going to design? Yes. Okay, There cool. is. I have actually just recently built my house in, in Sweden, so I've definitely got the itch again. Nice. Um, yeah, there is. All right, um, our next question, we'll start down here with David and work our way this way. Mid-century modern design has been huge the last 15 years. Do you see this continuing, or is the movement running out of steam? Uh, I don't believe it's running out of steam at all, um, because I, I don't believe it's a trend. Um, I think it's much bigger than that. I think it's actually a lifestyle. And I think that's really apparent when uh, you look at California modernism in particular, which is really about a lifestyle that's about, um, you know, open plans and large extensive uses of glass, of connectivity with indoor-outdoor spaces, um, and, you know, really taking advantage of the temperate Southern California climate. And I think that's what people want. They want to attach themselves to a lifestyle, not necessarily a trend, something that's just happening in, in, in patterns. I think they want to connect to something that is more deeply rooted in a lifestyle that uh, people can attach to and be a part of and, and, and live. And I think that that's what's inherent in certainly California modernism and mid-century modernism. So I don't think it's anywhere. I don't think it's going anywhere. All right. So it's here for a while. I think so. Okay. Massimo? Um, I, I kind of agree with David, actually. I think that it's, it's not really a trend, so it won't really die. It kind of feels that it's a bit more in the, the DNA of, of furniture and design and architecture and things like that. Um, I, I actually live most of my time in Stockholm, which is very close to Denmark, which is kind of home to a slightly different version of mid-century modern, something a bit more purist. Um, but personally, I kind of am a bit fed up with it. If I'm, if I'm going to be totally honest. You can be um, honest with us. It's okay. okay. I'm fed up with it. Um, I th- it's I think just that I th- us here. I know, I know. Yeah. It's only the <laughs> us and Wembley. But I'm, I'm a little bit fed up with it. I, th- I think that people use it en masse um, and they see it as a mainstay rather than maybe like an accent or something unique. Um, I also think there's kind of like versions of fakes or fakes of versions that have, have sort of muddied the water so to speak you know in Denmark you know everyone will have their Ikea kitchen and then maybe an Eames chair that they've got passed down from their dad or whatever it is and that has like a sort of special story to it or weight to it whereas I've found on this side of the pond it is and probably actually in boutique hotels and things like that in hospitality in Europe it's kind of just overused Um, and I, I guess I kind of I think that designers use trend periods a bit like a crutch and by that I mean they sort of like revert to what is considered stylish Um, and I think sometimes these trends whether it's mid-century modern or 70s or 80s or 90s can kind of like hold back trying to design product and spaces and buildings that's a bit more present a bit more sort of culturally relevant for today um, so I, I kind of am fed up with it. I'd, I'd like to see more professional designers sort of poke their heads out of Pinterest, I guess, and start to make more original things and kind of reinvent or create our version of whatever mid-century modern might be. Right. Um, so, yeah, I'm always a bit funny about that pastiche stuff. But saying that, 
it's amazing. The scale's amazing. It's so usable. There's so many amazing pieces, but it's just, you know, for me, it's time to move on a little bit or, or reassess how much you use it. So, yeah. That's so it's become too, become too much of a default for some people. Yeah, just, a, bit, a bit generic. Yeah, it's just balanced wrong. So someone might do a living room with 50% mid-century modern furniture, which doesn't quite feel right, you know, which they just go and buy, at, I don't know what the stops are called, West Elm or wherever it might be. Whereas I think, I think they're always... The, 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 the true architecture, the true mid-century modern furniture, the proper stuff is, you know, it's always that special legacy thing that's been passed down, it's got a great story, you know, and obviously, being a sort of contemporary product designer, there's so much to love about the silhouettes and the scale, and, and obviously you can take inspiration from it, but, I, I, yeah, I don't... The, I, I think we just need to sort of be a bit more original. Right, okay. <laughs> That's the bottom line, yeah. Thank you. John? Well, I have to agree with you a little bit. I think that it's a, it's a beautiful aesthetic, and I think that it's easy for people to envision it in their homes because it's, the lines are so clean, and you know the woods and the fabrics and the materials that are used are, are really easy to envision those in your space. I don't think it's going anywhere, frankly, because I think that everyone is... It's, it's everywhere you turn, whether it's in one iteration or another. As you were saying, I think that... To me, the key is to take the elements from that that are interesting, and I design furniture, and I'm sure a lot of us up here do as well, and I think it's to take those things that we like about it, whether it be the low profile, or whether it be the clean lines, or whether it be the, the bleach wood, or whatever the metals that was used on it, and then reinvent that, to your point, in a, in a fresh new way. And I don't think that by taking everything mid-century and placing that in your home is the way to go. I think that design is a mixture of all of these genres and by it's up to us to educate our clients and, and the general public on how to do that I think and if if they're looking at us and we're just bringing in you know 20 mid-century modern pieces in a space then really where is our skill set in making that room interesting you know it's it doesn't not to say that it doesn't take skill to do that, but it takes a little more effort, I think, to really blend all of these genres together. And I think that's where my design is today, and I think that that's where design in general is, not only with the products that we use, but in the rooms itself. Because when, when I design a room, I want your eye to sort of bounce around the space and see something interesting here and see something interesting there. And it doesn't really necessarily happen if you have one uh, aesthetic in a space. So right. I like to mix it all together. Okay, thank you. Allison? Well, I think that um, mid-century is here to stay, and I love the idea that mid-century is kind of like in the DNA of the furniture design right now. I think mid-century um, brought to light like the use of, of different materials, um, you know, polished chrome and the, the different ways in which they use like different species of wood and scale and proportion, all of that. Like, it was definitely, I mean, obviously, it's such a movement, but I think we see it coming back in this major way because of the um, secondary markets that are coming up. So young people who are interested in design who might not have, you know, unlimited funds in which to design are able to find all of this, these great pieces that are coming back up on Cherish and on the Sotheby's, um, all of these different kind of platforms in which people are trading their older, you know, gently used furnishings. And so I think that, like, it's really good for people. Mid-century is like a controlled environment. It's like, I'm hip, I've got a new apartment, 
and I want it to look cool. So what am I going to do? Like mid-century. It's almost like it all works. It's got this whole vibe unto itself. And so I think that mid-century gives um, design enthusiasts, especially new to um, owning a house or renting an apartment, kind of a, a starting point to say like, okay, this is cool stuff and it doesn't look like my mom's or my grandma's. And so let's see how this works. And I think as you get more comfortable and more confident in your own aesthetic, that's when you start blending these different styles and incorporating different, you know, traditional or eclectic or found within your mid-century kind of collection of things. I think that mid-century, because of how excellently they were designed and the pieces are so like prolific just in terms of like scale and function and design like that period of time for architecture and furniture it was really quite something to see on all of these levels design coming into the forefront in such a really significant way and so i think that when you look at you know italianate and traditional and um Art Deco, mid-century pieces are really easy to incorporate into your design because they kind of were taking the best of all of these like olden, tried and true styles to make this totally new movement. So I think that um, definitely it's here to stay. We're seeing a lot more of it because of its availability in the secondary market and because it's kind of like an easy, very palatable way to be cool and hip and stylish. Right, it's a great starting point. It's a great starting point. And then I also think, you know, we, because they're also so iconic that like it's really great to incorporate it into an otherwise traditional project or, you know, in a kid's room where you know it's going to be beat to hell, but it can stand it because it's been designed really well. So I I love mid-century modern for that. I I do not love a room that is all mid-century modern. I can appreciate it if it's in a mid-century modern house that is specific and it's like that was its purpose. But unless you are like the like brand new to the design world and you're just super like you're, I can appreciate it if you're super psyched because this is what you did and you think it's cool. But I would love to see something else in the room as well. You know, okay. I really want to see it like blended and mixed. That's where right. I feel it's the most comfortable. I think, I think that's kind of moving on from what, what Alison said. That's what you're seeing a lot of at the moment is kind of mid-century blended with newer styles. It's a lot harder with kind of antique furniture to really use that in a scheme because it is so stylized and it is so ornate. It's quite hard to blend that with a lot of the other pieces. Whereas mid-century, I think you can, you can get away with it. And if you look what's opening in the last couple of weeks downtown, you've got, you've got Hoxton Hotel, you've got so, the new Soho Warehouse. Mm-hmm. It's all along that scheme. There's a lot of kind of reclaimed mid-century pieces reupholstered and then used with kind of other classic pieces but also modern pieces and it all I think part of the problem with it is that it it is almost so well designed that it sits really well with a lot of other stuff which is why I think you see a lot of designers using it and I I agree that I don't think it's going anywhere well we have enough material and questions here for several more hours but we are out of time and I want to thank our panel please give them a round of applause for coming to join us here today They will be hanging out for a few minutes if you want to come up and ask some questions or say hello. I'm George Smart with U.S. Marnish Radio. Thanks very much for coming and enjoy Westhead. That is a wrap on this episode of Convo by Design featuring this incredibly talented group of creators. Thank you, George, for moderating so skillfully. 
Thank you, Studio Akiko, Kevin Isbell Interiors, John McLean Design, and Julia Wong Interiors for making the West Edge stage so beautiful and such a wonderful place to have these conversations. And thank you for listening, downloading, subscribing, emailing, and coming out to our events. Without you, there is no Convo by Design, so thank you. And thank you to our sponsor, Walker Zanger. You guys are amazing, and it is a joy to work with you. Please follow the podcast on Instagram, Convo by Design with an X, and make sure you subscribe everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. That way, you'll receive new updates on your mobile device the moment they're published. And if you want, ask Alexa. She'll get it for you. Just say, hey, Alexa, play Convo by Design. And she will. It's amazing. Until next week, keep creating. 